From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Drought and climate change mean there are more wildfires in Colorado, but that's only part of the picture. What we've seen over the last four decades is an acceleration in area burns and an acceleration in area burn to high severity. That is, fire behavior has changed too. At the same time, more people are living in fire-prone places. Coming up, analysis from CPR's climate team of the state's wildfire plan. Is it evolving fast enough? Then, the pandemic's been a nightmare for hospitality workers, which is why we're asking you to celebrate great service, like Danny's. It's hard in this time to think that we can express ourselves even with masks on, and warmth doesn't have to be seen, it can be felt. And another chance to hear our Selena tribute. The Tejano superstar would be 50. Something has shifted in the way we're all talking about cannabis legalization. This is about repairing harm that's been done to communities for the last 40 years as a part of the failed war on drugs. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, and I host On Something, a podcast all about life after marijuana legalization. And in this upcoming season, we're focusing entirely on the pitfalls along the path to social equity. The new season of On Something starts May 11th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The height of fire season is on its way, and the forecast isn't pretty. In a new report, fire and forestry officials tell Coloradans to brace themselves for another year of large, fast-moving, and potentially life-threatening blazes. From CPR's climate team, Joe Wirtz and Sam Brash are here to walk us through the findings and the state's plans to respond. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Hey, Ryan. Joe, typically the release of this report and forecast marks the start of planning for Colorado's annual wildfire season. But officials offered a different warning this time. They did. So we're not having fire seasons anymore. We're having fire years. That's how they described it. The forestry and and fire officials together said that this period of time that we have to be concerned about with fires is is just growing like crazy. So since the 1970s, the fire season, the sort of period of the concentrated worry is now 78 days longer than it was in the 70s. Wow. So if we look back to the 60s, Colorado used to have like 450 wildfires a year. Last year, we had 6,700. They're getting bigger. You know, in the 60s, we're talking about fires that collectively burned around 8,000 acres. Last year, Colorado, 750,000 acres. We're looking at a lot more. Yeah, those numbers are startling. Sam, you covered the record-setting fires of 2020. Mm-hmm. Your reporting showed that how these fires burned could be just as important as how much they burned. That's exactly right. I think the one thing we can't just hammer enough is that there are good fires and there are bad fires, right? Good fires, we're talking about slow, less severe fires. Really rough fires are extremely hot and move extremely quickly. They burn a lot of property. They threaten human life. They can very quickly kill people, right? One very good example we saw last year was the East Troublesome Fire in Grand County. Climate change was a major factor Sean Parks is an ecologist with the U.S. Forest Service. He studies the relationship between fire and climate. And he's looked back as far as he could at fires in Colorado, not just at how much area burned, but how much area burned under high severity conditions like this fire. So what we've seen over the last four decades is that there's been an acceleration in area burned 
and an acceleration in, in area burn to high severity. So as the climate continues to dry out and warm, if these relationships hold, we should expect to see a lot more fire in the future. Basically, climate change means that we're going to see more of these explosive fires like the East Troublesome, and those are also the most dangerous fires. This is fascinating because I think so often I pay attention to numbers of fires and acreages, but that's really only part of the picture. It's how they're burning. Uh, Warming temperatures have also combined with extremely dry weather here. I mean, Colorado's prolonged drought just seems like it's setting the stage, Sam, for these vicious seasons or years. Absolutely. So with drought, we have below normal snowpack. That's pretty obvious. But the thing that is less obvious is what's happening underneath that snow as well. The soil is really dry. That means vegetation is dry. And that means as the snowpack melts, the soil is going to suck up that water, but it might dry out quickly as the season keeps going, keeps going, keeps going, and there's not more precipitation. Right now, there's really no end in sight. Just reported new numbers from NOAA showed that 65% of the high plains across the U.S. are in drought, and the feds expect that that will worsen and lead to less precipitation. One other alarming piece of new research suggests that Colorado and other western states are likely to see less drought-busting rains, and that's a really long-term trend. Gosh, I think of the snowpack as being helpful, but the snow can be on top of just dry land. I mean, that's great insight. Forest conditions play a major role here. I mean, do we know what local, state, and federal governments are doing to clear out dead trees and overgrowth? Yeah, we know a little bit. Uh, 2021 reports notes that the declining health of Colorado's forests is a major factor in elevated fire risk. Uh, Colorado has a ton of forests that are in bad shape, and our reporting has shown that state foresters aren't allowed to set controlled burns. So a lot of that comes down to the federal government. But last year, some of these activities were postponed in the Rocky Mountain region due to the pandemic. Okay, so there's been limited controlled burning. What about logging? Like, that's another way to thin, right? Yeah, it's absolutely another way to thin. Uh, Here's the thing. Colorado (laughs) doesn't have much of a logging industry. Uh, The wood here just doesn't really work for most traditional lumber uses. Think about like two by fours. A lot of those come from the Northwest and also the Southeast. That's a huge region for lumber production. But there are other potential uses for the sort of wood that comes out of Colorado forest that's usually like more gnarled and smaller and often diseased. Uh, One is biochar. This is like a super cooked charcoal that can be a really good soil amendment. And, you know, you've seen like beetle-eaten pine, like bars and fancy furniture. Yeah, right, right. You can find things to do with it, but it's not always as obvious as a 2x4 at Home Depot. Okay, we're talking about fires, wildfires in Colorado. What's ahead uh, as the warm months near? Members of our climate team Sam Brash and Joe Wirtz are with us. Joe, fires that ravage forests and wilderness areas are scary, but the biggest worry is people. That's right. Colorado fire officials recently mentioned that a lot more people were moving into what's called the wooey. The wooey, right. (laughs) A weird term you you hear a lot about when you talk to anybody about forests. So the wooey is the wildland urban interface, and that's the area where houses, buildings, and people and structures overlap with these areas that were just once wilderness areas. It's where the danger meets the people, and that becomes a real hazard. Jennifer Balch is a fire scientist uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And she says people need to reset their expectations about what living in fire-prone areas is like. We have the expectation that we're going to put every fire out, and there's just too many homes and structures to protect. Wow. 
Yeah, that's right. And you see that in the report that was just released. The scale of things last year was such that they can't save everything. Uh, people need to think about that as more and more people are living in these areas. It's obviously a, a draw to a state like Colorado is, is, is living in these wilderness to areas. To see the forest, right. That's right. Look, you know, wildfire has always been a part of the ecosystem here in Colorado, but people have not always been a part of the natural ecosystem. Balta and other folks say we need top-down solutions to protect property and people from climate change. You know, they talk about things like statewide building codes, but even after last year's record-breaking season, there's just not a lot of appetite for things like that. Sam, Colorado authorities say they learned a lot from that 2020 season. And those fires changed their approach. How? I think the big thing we're seeing uh, from the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control is they want to be more about early detection and really rapid suppression of fires as they start so they don't get out of control. A lot of that depends on aircraft. They have contracts for helicopters reserved and ready to go, air tankers uh, that can douse a fire with water. Uh, Polis even signed a bill for a $31 million Firehawk helicopter. That's like a Black Hawk converted for fire that can quickly deliver water. So essentially the idea here is they're going to use these aircraft to detect fires as soon as they start, get a better idea of exactly where they are, and put them out as quickly as possible. None of this is a wholesale departure, though, from how Colorado has dealt with wildfire in the past, is it? I mean, this is not a reinvention. No, they're doubling down on a strategy that I would describe as full suppression, right? The idea is if a fire starts, you're going to try to put it out, which I think to most people that makes uh, a lot of sense. But it's important to note this is getting more and more expensive. Colorado spent $38 million fighting wildfires last year. Over the last decade, that bill is more than $200 million. And that's just the state's share of the cost. That doesn't count the Forest Service or anything else. It's important to note that when you suppress fires really quickly, you're not getting the sort of beneficial fires that clear out fuel from the forest. Right. The good fires you mentioned earlier. Exactly. So like this strategy, there's a chance that it might protect people in the short term, which I want to be clear, that is very, very important. But long term, it could set up forests for even bigger fires. I have heard this described as aggressive initial attack, that that will be the state's mode. Mm -hmm. So we've moved from fire seasons to fire years. Can we look ahead any further than that? Like, what do we know, Joe, about the wildfire situation long term? Yeah, all the data suggests that this is going to be a chronic problem for the United States, for the West, and, and for Colorado. Nationwide, the amount of area that burns is likely to double to 20 million acres. Uh, in Colorado, it's going to increase fivefold the amount Ooh. of area that burns. So by 2050, we're expecting the population in Colorado to grow from 5.5 million to you know, eight and a half million. And those people that we talked about that live in the WUI, that number is expected to more than double before we even get to 2050. So that people part of the equation, that graph is going up at the same time that the numbers are getting bad um, for these fire risks. Kind of a perfect fire storm. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. From CPR's climate and environment team, editor Joe Wirtz and reporter Sam Brash. A few federal agencies have an outsized influence in Colorado. In a state where almost a third of the land is public, Interior is one of those agencies, overseeing national parks, Indian affairs, mining, wildlife, and more. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports that with new leadership, 
Coloradans can expect some major policy shifts. On Interior Secretary Deb Holland's second day on the job, a small group of supporters parked a video screen outside the department's headquarters in Washington, D.C., flashing messages of encouragement and thanks. Under a light rain, Holland, the first Native American Secretary of the Interior, came out for a look. I'm so humbled by the opportunity that President Biden has given me. There is a lot of expectation riding on Holland's shoulders. The federal government is required to consider multiple uses for the lands it owns, juggling fossil fuel development, recreation, conservation, ranching, and more. Administrations often have different priorities, which changes up how multiple uses are balanced. Holland touched on this at a virtual forum on the future of oil and gas development on public lands. Now is the time for all of us to have a frank conversation about the future of our shared resources. I'll not pretend that this moment of reflection will be easy or that we have all the right answers, but I can promise you that I'll listen to you. I'll be honest and transparent throughout this process. Will Rausch, executive director of the Wilderness Workshop, says this discussion is long overdue. He supports the Biden administration's focus on climate change, environmental justice, and possible reform of the oil and gas leasing system on public lands. We're not pretending there won't be folks who object to it. At the same time, I think it's great to see the administration, you know, they ran on these issues and now they're acting on them. And uh, that. That seems to be the right move. As part of President Joe Biden's immediate work on climate change, he signed an executive order temporarily halting oil and gas leasing on federal lands. The Western Energy Alliance has sued to undo it, as have a number of states, but not Colorado. Kathleen Skama, president of the Western Energy Alliance, says Holland is saying the right things about oil and gas remaining part of the U.S. energy mix. But still, she fears the temporary halt is anything but. You know, when you start to look at the impacts of those policies in the West, um, it it looks like it's a sacrifice of Western jobs and economic opportunity, um, you know, to satisfy the environmental left. She points to an industry-funded study that shows Colorado could lose $586 million a year if the leasing moratorium stretches out for all of Biden's term. The state might also lose thousands of jobs, most of that felt in the western slope. Holland's support of the Green New Deal during her time in Congress made her a target of some Republicans, including Colorado Representative Doug Lamborn, who said via tweet that Holland is an extremist. But Democratic Senator Michael Bennett understands the pressure Holland will face stemming from competing and sometimes conflicting uses of public land. I think if we're going to continue oil and gas development on our public lands, then we need to do it the right way with high standards and low emissions uh, and and with individuals and local governments having a say in the process. And I believe that's what Colorado wants, and I think that's what Secretary Holland will deliver. Some calls for new conservation protections that might limit grazing on public lands have raised concerns, as has the administration's 30 by 30 goal, protecting 30 percent of U.S. lands by 2030. Ernest House Jr., who serves on the board of Conservation Colorado and is a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, says this is when listening to locals will be key. The consultation is really the the big effort and opportunity to intently listen, to bridge the the gaps and and meet with all the stakeholders at the table and ensure that the right voice is around the table. Uh, And I think that's what she's going to bring to this position. And if Coloradans hope Holland keeps an open mind... Many of them are keeping an open mind about a Holland-led interior. 
Mark Rober is a fourth-generation rancher whose family has been grazing cows and calves on public lands since before they were public lands. We'll just have to see how it goes. It's, I'm not going not gonna to put out a verdict yet, uh, but we are hopeful. A strong advocate of multiple use, Rober says his biggest hope is that the Interior Department, regardless of who leads it, remains a good partner when it comes to the lands that many Coloradans love for multiple reasons. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Hospitality workers have had it rough during the pandemic. Layoffs, hours cut, the risks of COVID, which is why we're asking Coloradans to tell us about exceptional service people. One of the first contributions to come in is from Holly Shuck of Longmont. She says the general manager of a Boulder brewery called Wild Provisions, Danny Sheriff, has been a light in the pandemic darkness. We connected on video chat. Holly, you've got some words for Danny. Now that makes it that makes it sound like you're you're going to complain, but that's really not the case here. <laughs> no. I mean, we know Danny because our pediatrician is actually down by Wild Provisions, and every time we go, we swing into the brewery and we visit him, and it's so nice to have this hometown feel guy who can teach us about beer and not make us feel awkward as new parents in the pandemic age, being able to come in and and feel welcome just like everybody else is amazing. So you cart the child to the pediatricians and then you cart the child as well to the brewery. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. You sound very older of us. Some very hip parents. (laughs) Holly, what did you write? I'll just have you read your words when we asked people to elevate, to single out Really great hospitality. My email to you guys was, Danny greets us with a masked warm smile every time and always makes time to explore new flavors of beer with us. He's really a one of a kind sudslinger with a hometown feel. We appreciate every visit in these strange times. Sudslinger. Did you come up with that? I worked at Avery and that's what they called all the uh, bartenders, I guess. Okay. Avery Brewing also in Boulder. And Danny is on the line, having listened to this. Hi, Danny. Hi. How does that make you feel? God, what an incredibly flattering thing to say. It's truly, truly lovely. I think what's fascinating about what Holly wrote there is that she can tell you're smiling even though you're masked. Yeah, it's it's hard in this time to think that we can express ourselves even with masks on. And warmth doesn't have to be seen, it can be felt. Have you had to kind of practice that, like smiling with your eyes or yeah most definitely there's lot there's lots of other ways that we found to you know be warm and welcoming and as friendly as humanly possible even with the masks i was reading up just a bit on wild provisions so it, it sounds like throughout the pandemic you've done a lot of carryaway business and you've had limited in-person imbibing tell us how the pandemic has been on on this business Well, we opened during the pandemic. So we opened this past July. So from the beginning, it was a learning experience. And from the beginning, it was a challenge. We sort of transitioned from exactly as you said, from to go only to on-premise sales and consumption and through the whole outdoor seating only, and then now limited capacity indoors to now something that feels vaguely more like normal. Vaguely like normal is a great description of this time. Holly, have you 
sat out on the patio and and been able to relax a bit, or has it mostly been carry-on? Uh, we come and do dine-in. Being in the restaurant industry, I still think it's important to be able to see people and make them know that they're appreciated in a different sense than just grabbing some beer to go. Are you still in, in hospitality yourself, Holly? I am, yeah. It says something about you, that you are in the hospitality industry, and that when we called out for examples of great hospitality, that you would reply. What do you think that says about someone who's, you know, done similar work to what Danny does? Uh, I think it's important to highlight the people who are good at their job and their career. It's always nice to go somewhere and feel like you're at home and that's kind of your job working in the hospitality industry. I also imagine, and and maybe Danny, you can reflect on this too, when you hear from people, is it most often when they're unhappy? I think it is in part. It tends to be in either side of that spectrum, either incredibly pleased or incredibly unhappy. Uh (laughs) And unfortunately, you know, it it tends to be either of those extremes. Yeah. But we, we, Holly and I in the service industry, so rarely get this type of attention that's just genuine and positive, purely based on nothing other than great experience. Yeah, there's a lot um, shown on the the Yelpers, the angry side of it. But then you also get those people who you make their day. Um, yeah. I was just looking up a little bit more about uh, Wild Provisions Beer Project there in Boulder. And you specialize, uh, Danny, in something called fermented lagers and coal ship, K-O-E-L-S-H-I-P, beers. There'll be plenty of people listening who know what that is. I'm not among them. What's a cool ship beer? A cool ship is cool a, ship. I'm uh, so sorry. Cool, cool, cool ship. Cool ship. That's okay. A cool ship is a a vessel. It's a vessel in the brewing process, specifically used in open fermented Czech style lagers and in spontaneously fermented wild sour beer. Were there times, Danny, when you weren't sure the business would make it? Thankfully, no. We were incredibly lucky to have the support of not only locals like Holly, but also from everyday Coloradans who love craft beer and who were excited to support us, even though it was during a pandemic, and we're happy to come in and just buy bottles and cans to go from the very beginning. As much as I hate to admit this about myself, there were absolutely times that alcohol was comfort in the pandemic. I mean, I, I just have, right, we have to be honest about this. Sure, but sure. In, in some ways, it might even be counter-cyclical, right? Like, pizza joints thrived in the pandemic for obvious reasons. And and uh, do you think there's a, an inverse relationship there between misery and beer? <laughs> God, I don't know. I <laughs> Let's say I hope that beer makes everything better in times <laughs> of misery and times of joy. <laughs> It sounds like it did for you, Holly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thanks to both of you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, of course. Danny Sheriff is general manager of Wild Provisions Beer Project in Boulder. His service throughout the pandemic stood out to Holly Shuck of Longmont. And we welcome your emails about top-notch hospitality this past year. Colorado Matters at CPR.org is the address. Colorado Matters at CPR.org. We do ask that you have no financial affiliation with the establishment. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with another chance to hear our tribute to the queen of Tejano music. Selena would be 50 now. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. 
As a member, you are essential because you help make this statewide news and music service possible. Nearly 50% of CPR members are sustaining Evergreen members who keep programming strong month after month. It's easy and affordable to join them and start giving monthly today. If you're already giving, please consider increasing your existing gift by a few dollars a month. Thank you for keeping the news and music going strong. Make your gift now at CPR.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tejano superstar Selena would have turned 50 just on the 16th. Her legacy lives on long after her death. Earlier this year, I spoke with some of the people behind the Netflix series about her, as well as the podcast Anything for Selena, plus a fan of the Mexican-American singer Stephen Linkus. He remembers driving from Denver to the state fairgrounds in Pueblo back in 1994 to see Selena and her family band Los Dinos. You don't see very many Latinos, especially Mexican-Americans, out front. She wasn't the first Mexican-American to be on, you know, TV, music, or what have you. But she was the one that it seemed like was going to take it to that next level. And she was the one that was going to finally break us out of this bubble of, you know, this hidden people that people know exist but don't always acknowledge. Selena's first language was English, but at her father's urging, she learned to sing and eventually speak in Spanish, becoming the queen of Tejano music. Her Pueblo show was not Stephen Linkus's first Selena concert. He'd seen her in Denver, too, and Kansas City. But this one stood out. You know, she's up there dancing and playing to the crowd. You know, she's pointing out different members. I even laughed because she, she pointed at me and like kind of mimicked the dance move I was doing. Um, you know, it wasn't like a crowd of 10,000 people. You know, it was, it was an open area. She wasn't as big then, uh, in Colorado at least. It was probably more of an intimate affair where there was less people. And she was able to more easily engage the crowd. How were your moves that she imitated? Were they good? Pretty good, I gotta say, they were pretty good. That's why she did them. <laughs> nah, I, I, uh, you know, in, in the house, my parents, you know, always loved Tejano music. So she was kind of that newer generation at that point of Tejano. And it was okay. I mean, when you grow up, you don't want to hear what your parents listen to, but, you know, you got this attractive young lady singing and dancing and, you know, great moves, and then she can actually sing as well. So you, you kind of get into the music. Do you have a favorite Selena song? Probably La Carcacha would probably be my favorite. Just the beat to the song, you know, just would grab you. And, you know, you can put it on anywhere. People start dancing. People get into it. Was that the song about having a really bad car? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like your hoopty, like we used to say in English. Yeah, jo- like a jalopy. Yeah, not a very good car. Nothing solid. Nothing <laughs> you wanted to show off. <laughs> Hey! 
Blinkist had high hopes for Selena that she'd become a crossover star, capturing not just the Latin market, but the pop market too. Selena was on the threshold of that when she was murdered March 31st, 1995. Her death sent shockwaves through a community that had seen itself represented proudly, fiercely on stage and screen. I was like, this is crazy. And it was, uh, it was a weird feeling, to be very honest. The loss of the potential is really devastating, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the English language market, she hadn't even scratched the surface. I mean, I remember Dreaming of You came out and, you know, I heard Dreaming of You on some of the English stations. I was like, wait a second, that's Selena. What? Whoa, okay. It was kind of unheard of, right? You know, you had had like Gloria Stefan in the Miami Sound Machine, maybe a John Cicada, but, but really never a Mexican-American. So it was, it was very cool to hear that because it was like, yes. You know, we're, we're moving. We're going the right direction. This is only going to open more doors. After her death, Selena was immortalized in a film starring Jennifer Lopez, a movie that would become beloved. And now, 25 years after Selena's passing, her life is being explored anew. Sadie Lopez plays the singer's mom, Marcela Quintanilla, in Selena the Series on Netflix. Hi, Sadie. Hi, who are you? I'm doing well. Pleasure to speak with you. Jaime Davila is an executive producer of this series. Hi, Jaime. Hello, hello. And Maria Garcia is a senior editor at WBUR in Boston. She hosts Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. Welcome to the show, Maria. Hi, thanks for having me. I'd love for each of you to tell me about the first time you heard Selena and how her music resonated with you. Sadie, you want to start? Sure. With me, it was back in um, 97 during um, the film Selena. I was lucky enough to also be in the movie. And that's really what would expose the music, um, her story, her background, all of it to me. Um, and it was special. It was really nice and empowering and encouraging for me to see that here was this young woman and young girl at the time when she first started that started not knowing her culture, not knowing her own language. And then when her music started crossing over to Mexico City, started kind of exploring it and just kind of um, learning it at a later time as she got 
you know, more famous. And so to hear the combination of her kind of embracing the music, you know, the Latino music and all, most of the songs were in Spanish at first, you know, um, was really exciting for me. Uh, say just a little bit more about that before I ask the others about their first time hearing Selena, how did you feel that you identified with her? What aspects of your biography uh, might have mirrored hers? Well, what was nice about it is that at the time you would only hear songs just in English or just in Spanish. And they were usually straight from, you know, Mexican artists, not crossover artists. And Mm. so to actually hear someone close to my age singing songs that were both in English and Spanish, because sometimes even in their Spanish songs, they would throw a little Spanglish in there. And it was relatable, you know, it was refreshing. And it was kind of nice to see that, look, you know, someone like me got up there and did it. And and, and they're sharing like this combination of both cultures. And it's so beautiful. And I can do it. Then anyone can do it. So she she represented that to us. Yeah. I mean, I think what I hear you saying is that it was in a way, a blending, uh, a, com- a coming together of identities, uh, as opposed yes. to saying this part of me is over here and that part of me is over there. Uh, Maria, yes. do you remember hearing Selena for the first time? Uh, well, I remember the first time I really saw her, you know, growing up on the U.S.-Mexico border between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. Selena was just everywhere. I discovered her through osmosis. She was everywhere in Texas in the 90s growing up. But I do have a very vivid memory of the first time I really noticed her on television. I must have been seven years old. And even then, this young, it was incredible moving and profound to me. It's a foundational memory, I think, in how my identity came to be, is seeing this woman who looked like my community, a Mexican-American woman who sounded like my community, seeing her on television in the 90s and in the era that rewarded so much assimilation, seeing her ascend without compromising her roots, without compromising who she was and where she came from. She represented this sort of ascendance without compromise. And even for a seven-year-old, I hadn't intellectualized it. It took me a whole lifetime to make sense of it. And now, you know, anything for Selena is sort of like what that quest has been to figure out why it was so profound for me, why her existence was political and profound for so many people. But even then, as a seven-year-old, it was stunning to me, revolutionary to me, to see somebody take pride in an identity that was so derided at the time, you know, a working class Mexican-American identity. I ask this because I experienced this as a kid, and I'm just curious if you did. Did you want to be Selena? Like there were people I so admired, I just wished I were them. Or was that not how this manifests? Oh for my you? God, I still want to be Selena. I am, 30, I am 35 years old. Like, I am still, every day when I get dressed and like put on those hoops and the lipstick, I am still trying to channel Selena. I mean, I think there's a whole generation of us who wanted to be Selena, who wanted to be her friend, who wanted to know her, who have now come of age. And we're at this moment of reflecting, like reflecting that we've grown up in Selena's legacy and that she has come to represent all of these things about our culture, about who we are. She's sort of like 
a symbol of a whole American experience. So yes, I want it to be Selena, but even more than that, I wanted to celebrate my identity in the way that she showed us how to do. Because before her, we didn't have an example of somebody who was celebrating their identity the way she was. I mean, this was in the mid-90s when Mexican-Americans were mostly portrayed as gang members, teen moms, lost dropouts, people living in poverty. And so Selena was this like evolved representation of this American experience. And it it stayed with us to see a woman celebrate our culture, celebrate her body for her. And now, like, you know, we're adults and we're still trying to be like her. You know? <laughs> uh, Jaime, do you remember the first time that you heard, maybe you saw Selena? Yeah, you know, so you know, I was born in McAllen, Texas. So I grew up with Selena, Selena Los Dinos, the Quintanilla family, my entire childhood. You know, they were basically South Texas royalty. So every quinceanera, every wedding, you would hear a song from something, you know, Bitty Bitty Bomb Bomb was the one I most remember in South Texas. But, you know, I would say my most vivid memory of Selena was actually when I moved away from Texas. When I was about 10, we moved to New York City. And all of a sudden, I was the only Mexican-American uh, kid there. I had just come from South Texas, so I had been eating a lot of chorizo. And uh, so it was a little <laughs> bit, I was a little bit pudgy. So I just felt like this really awkward kid with glasses, you know, trying to make my way. And I went to this middle school dance and felt so awkward. And then all of a sudden, Dreaming of You comes on. And, you know, obviously she had passed that previous summer. And I just remember all those feelings, just like anxiety and, and anxiousness just went away. And I just all of a sudden felt home and inspired. Late at night when all the world is sleeping, I stay up and think of you. And I still can't believe that you came up to me and said, I love you. You know, the, the, the Selena story, the Catania story has always inspired me and inspired me then, and it continued to inspire me. You know, it's a story of Mexican-American success. We are remembering the late Mexican-American Tejano superstar Selena, who would have turned 50 this month. Selena proved you could openly embrace your American self and your Mexican self proudly. Her short life brought her several times to Colorado, and she's the subject of a Netflix series. Actress Sadie Lopez plays her mom. As we mentioned, Sadie, you're in the unique position of having acted in both this new series and that 97 film. Would you care to say a few more words contrasting these two projects? Well, yes, we were telling the story of, you know, people were were first hearing who this young woman was and about the tragedy as well. Yeah, I mean, that she was murdered by the president of her fan club. You know, but I feel that with our series, 
after so many years and what's happened, it's like she went from this young woman that people first heard about to now becoming like this icon. So with the series, we got to explore her, not the tragedy, but her, everything that makes her, her music, um, the family's background, you know, her experience as a young kid, as a teenager, as a woman, as a musician. Sadie, your character Marcella is sometimes the voice of reason for her ambitious family. In this clip, as the matriarch, uh, she points out to her husband Abraham that a then very young Selena might not understand the meaning behind the song she's singing. Feelings of love. What did I do wrong? Nothing. The notes are good, you, you just not... It's about love. You know, how you, how you had it and then you lost it. Abraham, she's eight years old. She doesn't know about love yet. I know about love. I love you. I love dad. I love Suzette. I even love AB. I know. But what she's saying is it, it's a different kind of love. You just copy how I do it. And then one day it'll just make sense. Jaime, I also wonder if this is just a tremendous amount of pressure for a filmmaker. You know, Selena in the past decades has become an icon, has become a legend. You know, it's we we all have our memories of her. We all have our distinctive viewpoints on her. So yeah, we feel pressure. We felt the pressure. But I think what we really wanted to do with the series, you know, when we approached the family, when we approached the writers, the directors, you know, all the artists who worked on this, I think what we really wanted to remind the audience was of Selena's humanity. Maria, you relate to her imperfect Spanish, which reminded you of your own struggles. Let's take a listen. When I would mess up my Spanish... I felt this pang of humiliation and panic. But Selena was messing up Spanish all the time, and she did it with joy. When she sang, her Spanish sounded just fine. But she didn't learn to speak it until she was an older teenager. Here was Selena, saying stuff wrong, translating out loud, struggling for words in Spanish, and sometimes English, just like me. I wonder what you learned, Maria, about yourself in making this podcast about Selena. Ah, so much, so much. I mean, you know, the podcast is a... A thorough, rigorous, journalistic examination of how Selena changed American culture in the last quarter century. But really, it's a very personal story. It's my own personal quest to understand what it means to love Selena. One of the things that gets lost when we talk about her is the fact that she had already crossed over. Selena had crossed over into Mexico, 
which was a huge, huge deal. Um, you know, when I discovered Selena, like I said, I was living on the U.S.-Mexico border. My early life was spent in the States during the week and in Mexico on the weekends. And so I was very aware of my cultural duality from a very young age. Mm. I sort of came to consciousness very aware of it. And in both sides of the border, it felt like half of me was missing until I discovered Selena and I saw that there was a path forward, that there was a way to be myself on both sides of the border. And the way that she showed that to so many girls like me is by speaking the, the Spanish that she spoke, you know, a halting, learned Spanish. Uh, when I was a kid and I went to Mexico and I fumbled my Spanish, you know, kids called me a bocha, somebody who had ruined the Spanish language with my crass, working class, American accent. And so to see Selena cross over into Mexico, to see her beloved by Mexicans, to see the queen of bochas accepted into Mexico and have a Mexican-American say, I don't sound like you, but this heritage is mine too. This heritage is mine to claim. That was exceptionally profound. How did you sort the reality of Selena and the Quintanilla family from the mythology that has grown up around them since her death? What happens is when you're a lifelong fan of Selena and you consume everything, um, there's a narrative about her family, but more specifically her father. And, you know, we see it in the movie. Edward James almost did such a great job. And even in the Netflix series, they did such a great job of sort of portraying what a what a commanding presence he is um, <laughs> and what an exacting and demanding father he was. And so I went into the journey, frankly, thinking about him the way a lot of fans probably think about him, that that he was a little scary, that that he was controlling. Um, and when I spent time with him and uh, Suzette and their family, like I came to realize that a lot of the qualities that we love about Selena, uh, her spunky nature, she was a prankster, uh, her sort of zest for life, her effervescence. She got it from her family. And I'm so grateful that their struggle as a family and their journey as a family and their artistry as a family. I mean, they were true vanguards. They changed a tradition-bound genre in such innovative ways. I'm so glad that we're finally seeing that. Say just a few more words about that transformation that they helped bring. Oh, my goodness. Well, Selena uh, was the queen of what we know as Tejano, which is Tex-Mex music. Um, and it has its origins in a rural struggle in the 1800s when new white colonizers moved into Texas. Many of them brought the German polka with them and the German polka mixed with the Mexican folk guitar. It was a genre that was derided as sort of like the the D-class A working class art form compared to the dignified, you know, mariachi sound just south of the border. And then here comes Selena, who is now, by the way, ranked by Billboard as the most important female Latin artist of all time. So here comes Selena from this lowly genre 
And she comes and her family completely reinvents it in a way that fuses in American R&B and rap, jazz, American contemporary sounds, tropical rhythms from the Caribbean. So... Yeah, her artistry, their artistry as a family, I think is something that I'm so glad we're finally, we're giving them their justice and in seeing that on screen. Well, why don't you leave us, Maria, with uh, a Selena song that is especially dear to you and we will leave on the music, we'll leave on the artistry. I will leave us with Missing My Baby. It's a testament of her brother's really catchy songwriting of her emotive and silky singing. But most of all, it is an example of how much she infused her American influences, R&B, with traditional sounds to create art that's lasting, resonant, and beautiful. You're always on my mind. Maria Garcia is a senior editor at WBUR and host of Anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. We spoke in January. Actress Sadie Lopez appears in Selena, the series from Netflix, which Jaime Davila executive produced. The second season of that premieres in May. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our own team of superstars. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. Special thanks to Monica Castillo. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Matters.